This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. The Lincoln Memorial is actually a portal to a secret underground society. The president has not been a human since the 19th century. All religion is a part of the reptilian race because they feed off our turmoil. <laughs> oh man, fam, some uh, good conspiracy theories here around the uh, Thanksgiving holiday of our year of our Lord 2023. What y'all think? Should we get into them? Come on, fam, this profane faith. We have enemies within our country. I think it's a combination of demonology and psyop. The citizens are going to rise up and become deputized. I have always heard President Trump. I, I like the way he talked. He reminded me of most men. Joe Biden last night in the debate, hes it's like he's not even a human being. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represented extremism. Can you imagine repatriating all the black Americans that Pat just spoke about to Africa? Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins, faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, or even out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. And look, we won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'll be your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, hey, folks. How we doing out there in podcast land? Oh, yes. Here we are. Another, uh, man, another Profane Faith episode. Um, well, hopefully you've had a good uh, Thanksgiving. I'm recording this uh, on the, uh, yeah, the tail end of the Thanksgiving holiday here in 2023. Um, so if you listen in real time, you know, hopefully this connects. You've had a good time. Hopefully you've stayed away from uh, foolish family members. Um, I know my partner and I, we swore off going and doing family crap uh, on holidays years ago. It's, um, there's a lot that can come up, right? I mean, especially in this day and age, I mean... The 2016 election really put a lot of this this stuff really out there in regards to having conversations with your family, right? Um, and now you add in the Palestinian, excuse me, you add in the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict. Uh, you add in the migrants that are in so many cities. Uh, you add in the economy. I mean, it's just it's just crazy. It's it. So yeah, we just hung out here at the house with a family friend. I smoked my turkey as always. I smoked my um, my brisket. So I just did brisket and um, a turkey, smoked turkey. Put them on there for I don't know uh, eight hours on the smoker, then another six on the uh, the old oven because you know once it passes really six seven hours it's all the, all the smoke it's gonna take 
It's really just heat at that point. It's a little barbecue FYI for you there, huh? So, hey, no offense to any of the vegans or vegetarians, but uh, yeah, no, it was it was good. It was good. Still got some leftovers. Still got them. They're hanging in. They're hanging tough. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, man, Thanksgiving is always a fascinating holiday, um, especially as it's paired with kind of this capitalistic, uh, um, really materialistic uh, venture into the uh, you know consumerism of of a shopping, which is. Black Friday, right? I mean, and you know, Black Friday really started, uh, it starts earlier and earlier. This year, I think it started on the 4th of July, like on the 5th of July, Black Friday crap, man. So it's, uh, it's, it's intense to see <laughs> just, just all the things that people are trying to sell you. And you know, once upon a time, it, you know, you'd wake up and you would go to these actual things. You'd actually show up physically to a store. Uh, and now it's so much of it is just online. Um, you know, and there's a lot of debate around that, right? You got some folks, especially, you know, activists who are involved in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict saying, you know, it's interesting that they called um, a um, a ceasefire, you know, a four-day, five-day ceasefire, something like that, right around the time of the Black Friday holiday shopping madness. You know, some people correlated that to uh, just distractions, like people wouldn't be distracted, like you're going to go out and, you know, buy and buy. Um, I don't know if I necessarily believe that. Um, but uh, I do know that corporations, um, you know, they'll go to the umpteenth end to get you to buy their product. Uh, we're living in an era now where wealth and, and not even wealth, but just lavish wealth, like greedy wealth is shown and seen just as... What can I say? Um, it's the era where there, there, there is no shame from those who are particularly sorry. There's a cat in my office that just hopped up. I hope she didn't burn her paws. Um, she was. She hopped up. I have a furnace in my office, and uh, she hopped up there, and then you know, she, I think she got on the exhaust, and she was like, "Whoa!" Um, and took off. So, um, yeah. Hopefully, she's. Okay, my gosh. Uh, she's kitten, you know, they're into all the things. But anyways, all that to say, you know, hopefully, you know, you do what you got to do. Um, I'm getting to the point now where it's interesting where we find ourselves uh, in terms of where do we go, right? What what works for change? What works for actual um uh, you know, sustainable, long-term change. We talk about all these things that um, are there. Uh, we talk about all these boycotts. You know, for example, take Starbucks. Starbucks was one of the boycotts because, you know, it was shown that, you know, Starbucks CEO uh, gives money to Israel. Um, and so people were boycotting it and everything. At the end of the day, um, the, the hardcore effect, like I get you, do your boycott, the hardcore effect, though, doesn't affect those that really need to be affected by it. Again, this excessive wealth, this this era of CEOs that are protected of umpteenth layers of madness. The people that get hurt in that are the people who, who get disrupted in that are the people who actually work in those places. Um, the people who actually are involved in the day to day who are just trying to pay their bills. Because, again, capitalism, right? Um, because I always say 
Somebody has got to keep the lights on. Somebody paid for this microphone I'm speaking into. Somebody paid for this mixer. Somebody right now is paying to what with whatever device you're listening to this podcast on. Somebody had to pay for that. Um, and that's just the economy and the day that we live in. Now, I'm not taking a defeatist perspective and saying, oh, all is lost and let's just give up. No. But if you've listened to this show long enough, you know that part of my Part of my ethos is I do not want to be a fundamentalist on either end. I don't want to be a lefty fundamentalist. I don't want to be a conservative right-wing fundamentalist. Um, and I think for my own self, I'm trying to figure out what do we do? What go? What counts as what counts as actual change? Um, and you've known for a long time that. Um, you know, I'm I'm not for marches anymore. I'm not, I mean, I think they're cool, and I think they're you know a good solidarity thing to bring a group together and people together, and you know share some ideas. But in terms of it's going to change anything, mm, maybe, maybe not. Uh, and and that's where I'm that's what I'm wrestling with right now. Um, and you know, when you think about true change, you think about you know the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. Um, all these things are not necessarily embedded into law they still need to be voted on but that's a different conversation um you know these these environments they you know they were they were once looked upon as milestones and and they were they absolutely were um so i'm not taking anything away i'm just simply saying the decades following that if you study your history if you study and not just like history politics history but i'm talking about popular culture history, um, your social culture history, your financial history, uh, your medicine, health, and well-being history, uh, your religious history, right? Um, you know, because once upon a time, the conservative right wanted gun control when they saw black folks running around with guns uh, calling themselves the Black Panther Party, right? They were all for gun reform, Okay. Um, so again, once you study that history, you begin to see, whoa, there's quite a bit of shit in this pot of beans. Uh, I don't know if the pot of beans is going to make it. <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know if this, this, this jambalaya we call the American society, where we've just combined a whole bunch of things. I don't know if it's going to make it. So it's just some of the things that I hold in tension. Um, and I'm asking myself again, what is real change? Um, what happens when you actually sustain something? You know, people are talking about, oh, a ceasefire, 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 right. But the people who can do a ceasefire aren't doing a ceasefire. The only thing I can say about Israel is at least they're just being honest about how they feel about Palestinians, right? Some of the interviews that I've seen, I know this is not all pa uh, Israelis. I know this is not all Jewish people. But the commercial, or not the commercial, but the interviews that I've seen online and on the news, um, people are just like, no, we got to kill them. We got to take them out. They're disgusting. <laughs> they're vermin, right? This type of stuff. Um, that, and, and, you know, I don't agree with it, but I also am just like, well, I know where they stand. And this is the really thing, you know, this is kind of vexing thing that happens right here, you know, particularly for POCs and black folk in this country, is that we get this sort of message of, no, we care for you. We're passing laws. We're for everyone, right? All lives matter. Pro-life. We want all lives to sustain. But then you turn around and pass laws, right, uh, that undermine my my own sense of living, my own sense of, of, of 
of rights <laughs> as somebody who's black. So, you know, and we fixing to see in the next year, right? The election, you know, a year is less than a year away. Uh, I am no fan of Biden. Damn sure ain't vo voting for Trump. Um, and I'm tired of the Democrats coming to the black community talking about, you have to vote. This is it. It's going to be the end of the world if you don't vote for the candidate that we put in front of you. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm tired of, I'm tired of having to, you know, toe that mark. Everybody knows, or most people who think know, that we need uh, another party that is good. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not dumb. I know there's way more than three parties. I'm talking about a, a, a party that is, has the money and infrastructure that the Democrats and Republicans do. I'm all for green candidates. I mean, um, I forget who Cornell West is, is running with. Um, but, I, you know, most people know that brother, he ain't going to win. <laughs> um, and if he did, let's just say by some far out chance, this brother got to right the, the election night and he's like a contender. Um, I can't imagine he would last long. I'm just keeping it real. And I love Cornell West. OK, um, but I can't imagine he'd last long. So, again, what constitutes change? OK, what constitutes the sustainability of that change? Because there are some major things that are out there that are going on. Um, and because we live in a capitalist society, here we go, coming back to, you know, Black Friday and everything, and then you got to go to work. You got somebody's got to be bringing in money somehow, some way, some manner. Somebody's got to be doing it. So if you got to, you know, you got to go out and go to work, most likely your time is tied up with that. I got to go to work. I got to get there on time. I can't lose my job because we lose my job. We lose the house. We got to pay bills. Right. And it's just the, this machine that kind of keeps going forward. And we see good people, good thinking people are like, whoa, this is messed up. Why are we at war again? Why are we sending money to, you know, terrorists? Why are we sending uh, money to people who are killing uh, folks? I mean, all these things we see that are out there and then we ask ourselves, well, what can we do? What can I do? Okay, call your senator. Okay, that's cool. And yeah, there are people that if you can make it to Washington, D.C., right, you can go and you can actually meet with your representative. That's what they have office hours for, right? Uh, you might not necessarily meet with them. You'll maybe meet with one of their aides. But nevertheless, you can meet with them. But again, get your butt to Washington, D.C. Or, you know, if you have a, a, a state official, right, you, you can go and talk to them. But again, what is that actually doing? What is the lobbying that you, you know, that you would do, which is essentially that's what you would be doing, right? A person, what does that lobbying do? Especially if somebody over here is saying, hey, can I get a meeting with you? And I just have a couple of million, maybe even more dollars to give. They're just sitting around here. I want to give to your campaign, right? Um, and we know that that's the kind of crap that's happening. So... Again, asking that uh, question, and I'm holding that intention. I don't have an answer. Okay, I don't claim to have the answer. I'm just, I'm just trying to, in the wilderness, right? Just calling out the, you know, ringing the bell. Like, I think we. Because here's the thing: the things that need to happen in our society, um, in regards to change, people have been talking about this stuff for decades. You can just go back to the civil rights movement and and listen to their 12, 15 point positions in, in regards to social change. We know what needs to happen. Most people know what needs to happen. You cannot have a finite 
ideology and uh, uh, means of making money like capitalism, right? Just operating over and over and over and growth. Eventually that growth is going to eat its own growth. It just, it can't op keep operating this way. Um, and so where do we go? I don't know. And I think that when those pillars start to shake, that's when you have conspiracy theories uh, that pop up. Now, conspiracy theories, I want to, you know, I really want to get more into this uh, because there's so many levels of conspiracy theories, right? There are some that, you know, delve into like politics, right? Kennedy wasn't assassinated. He's still alive. Well, Kennedy was getting too close to shut down the CIA. I've heard that one. Kennedy uh, was, you know, really an alien and he to be taken out, right? So there's, there's all these things. And, and if you go looking for it, right, you think confirmation bias, if you're looking for something that, you know, if you, hey, to every hammer, everything's a nail, <laughs> right? So we have to ask ourselves, okay, what are the actual facts? And so uh, this week I'm talking with two cats that uh, have written a book, uh, Michael W. Austin and uh, Gregory L. Bach. They've put together a book uh, called QAnon, Chaos, and the Cross, Christianity and Conspiracy Theories. Uh, and you know me, I love me some readers. That's exactly what this is. This has a whole bunch of different perspectives in it, uh, looking at how things get developed, how conspiracy theories are really flavorful. I mean, they're like the, the fast food, high fatty acid, trans fat food of ideologies. <laughs> Right, because they sound good. Oh, we didn't land on the moon, really? No, man, that was on the stage, and they put that stuff together. Oh my gosh, tell me more. Oh, there's aliens that live, you know, in the middle of the earth and stuff. I could tell you why. I mean, I'm telling you. Oh, well, they dug a hole, and people reached hell. Right in Russia, they dug a nine mile hole, put a microphone down there, and you could hear people yelling, "They're in hell." All these things that are out there. Some of you may have heard some of those. Um, it's you know. We yet to have substantial proof of that. Now, that's not saying they may not be true, but they begin to disrupt how we look at life, how we engage with truth, how we engage with one another, right? Because QAnon, right, believes that Trump is the savior um, and that he will rise again. And somehow God has shined on Trump uh, to bring all these left-wingers and Democrats um, out of the, the carpet and, you know what I'm saying, because they've been out here drinking kids' blood and and, and having sex. They're pedophiles, right? Uh, it's fascinating stuff. It's fascinating stuff. So I wanted to start uh, a primer conversation uh, on this, so I brought these cats on um, to talk about that. And so uh, we should hop into it. They have some really interesting perspectives in regards to just uh, just where we find ourselves right now because chances are you know somebody who believes in a conspiracy theory, okay? Just statistically speaking, you know somebody who is like, oh, yeah, that's 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 true. That's true, and, and I have the proof, right? <laughs> um, you know, even if it's just somebody who says, I believe in ghosts. I saw one last night. I had a conversation with Teddy Roosevelt's ghost and... You know, um, and it's easy to dismiss people. It's easy to laugh at them. But as a researcher, as a scholar, I want to go deeper. I want to I want to investigate. So this is what these cats did. Um, so Michael W. Austin, he is an American philosopher and professor of philosophy 
at Eastern uh, Kentucky University. He's known for his works on moral philosophy and philosophy of religion. All right. And uh, his co-author, uh, Gregory Albach, is assistant professor of philosophy and religion at the University of Texas at Tyler and director of UT Tyler's Center for Ethics. Uh, he is also a program director in the Philosophy, Religion, and Austin Studies program. Uh, so these two cats edited this volume, um, and there's some great authors in it. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. As always, whitehodgepodcast.com forward space, profane faith. Check out the show notes. I'll put their bios in there and a link to this book. It is a really good read. It's fascinating. Uh, it's provocative in terms of just getting you to think a little bit, you know, beyond how we come about this and how race and gender Right? And socioeconomics also overlap on this. Uh-huh. Woo! Oh, I should remark that the cat was okay. Her paws were just fine. She just got a little stinger. But now I think she's learned not to hop on that exhaust. <laughs> all right, fam. Hope y'all had a good Thanksgiving here in the 20 of 23. And we'll see you next round. Come on, let's get into it. Um, well, this folks, welcome back to Profane Faith here. Uh, I have uh, two editors, authors on a book, QAnon, Chaos and the Cross, Christianity and Conspiracy Theories. This is this is going to be a great conversation. Uh, but first, uh, let me ask these two gentlemen what's been happening from birth to now. Uh, Michael, we'll, we'll start with you or Mike, I guess. Mike, All right. Mike. Yeah, that's fine. Um, well, from birth, it was in Kansas City. Okay. Uh, 54 long years ago. Um, <laughs> so as well, yeah, I was going to get into the chiefs and my suffering, but I'll let it go. Um, I'm just enjoying life now as long as it lasts. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was, I actually went to Kansas state university back in the eighties, political science, and then was out for a while, decided I wanted to be a philosophy professor and got a master's in philosophy at Talbot school of theology out in uh, near Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then PhD at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And I've been here at Eastern Kentucky University. This is my 20th year. So I do wow. teach philosophy, teach in the honors program here. I write mainly on, in areas of ethics, but also, you know, things like this book, kind of areas where Christian ethics and faith intersect with, yeah, just cultural, social issues that I think, um, yeah, just that I feel like I have something to say about that may be helpful. And, and in this case, get, yeah. helping other people, give them a platform where experts from a lot of different fields can have something to say. So I hear that. I hear that. No, that's good stuff. Yeah, no, Kansas City back in the day, man, the the, the ball team, man. Woo, but nah, y'all got the glory years going on now. I, a lot of Cincinnati Bengals fans around here, so <laughs> and maybe it makes me a small person, but I'm glad they've lost two in a row. It's, I had to... <laughs> Had a bad experience at a Bengals game, but anyway, yeah. So, yeah, and then uh, did some did my undergraduate undergraduate at Kansas State, political science. Did a master's in philosophy at Talbot School of Theology at Biola out in L.A. Uh, then PhD at Colorado in Boulder, and now I've been here at Eastern Kentucky for twenty years, uh, teaching philosophy courses, a variety of them in ethics, philosophy of religion. Um, yeah, my the main focus of what I'd like to like my writing and especially writing is about character and virtue from a Christian perspective and how those things overlap with sort of spiritual formation and growth. Okay. But I also kind of get into these issues like, well, like the, this book conspiracy theory, something that just kind of bothers me. And I think that the at least large segments of people in, 
in the American church, like broadly speaking, uh, are seem seem to go wrong here in important ways. And I think there's some important things that we can do to help them and ourselves. Uh, so that was kind of the, the heart behind the book. I love it. Oh, I love it. That's great. That's great. Uh, Greg, what about yourself? Birth to now, what's been happening? What's going on, brother? Yes, I'm Greg Bach, and I teach philosophy and religion at the University of Texas at Tyler. I'm also the director of the Center for Ethics here. I'm originally from California. I did my master's degree also at the Talbot School of Theology, uh, different years than Mike, but um, left California back in 2005 for the uh, green hills of Tennessee, did my PhD in Tennessee and uh, spent 10 years there, got my start, my first job at Walter State Community College, and now I'm at the University of Texas at Tyler. My research areas, um, my main research project right now is, is anger and forgiveness. So I have a couple of works on that. And in fact, the chapter I contributed uh, to this book is on anger. and Asking the question whether conspiracy theorists have an anger problem and whether the rest of us do too. So <laughs> just exploring questions like that. And uh, yeah, just excited to be a part of this project. I think it's a, a great resource for the church and the wider population. Uh, especially Christians. It's written by Christians for Christians, and hopefully it gives people some tools to to deal with these very difficult questions. Yes. No, absolutely. I Absolutely. I'm assuming y'all both have been going or, and, and are members of AAR, the AAR uh, community, correct? I have been a member of the AAR in the past, yes. Yeah, I presented, I guess, once, maybe just once, but yeah. Okay. Um, several people I know in that community, yeah. How did the, what was the genesis around this book, given, I mean, obviously conspiracy theories are nothing new. Um, QAnon is a whole thing, and I, I would love for y'all to break that down just for audience members who are like, what is it? I, I, I have no idea. I hear these things, but I don't know really what it is. Um, but you know, what, what was kind of the genesis of this book, like putting something like this together with so many different voices, uh, in it, either one of y'all can break it down. Yeah. I'm trying to remember how Greg and I got involved. I think maybe I, did I ask you, Greg, or did you ask me now? I'm totally, maybe Greg should answer I, this I think I'm, I think I might've asked you, Mike. Okay. Uh, I just, I just knew you might be interested in a project like this one. And I got yeah. interested in it because I have lots of people, friends I know that believe this stuff. And so it really caused me concern that more and more people seem to be believing this stuff. And I didn't know how to address it myself. And the best thing to do when you don't know how to do something is do some research or teach a class, right, Mike? That's um, exactly that's, right. That's the best way to learn something. So I thought, let's do this together. And, you know, we, we, didn't, we didn't feel we had enough material for, to write the book ourselves, but we knew a lot of people and we got some great uh, authors in in this book from different disciplines uh, to write their perspective. And I think I learned a lot through the project. Yeah. And that was, I think it ended up being stronger, even though sometimes edited collections are a little bit harder because, you know, you've got different voices every chapter, but this kind of subject, I mean, Greg and I could come from our philosophical perspective and some of the theological education we've had, but having, you know, people who specialize in biblical studies and theology and communications, um, history, you know, several other disciplines. I think it, it's like a more useful resource because you get to hear from about 24 or so people who uh, have thought deeply about this from from a Christian perspective, but from their, their field of expertise. And I mm -hmm. think that way, yeah, it just seems, I think that's really, like, like Greg said, I learned a lot. There are things that I've used from the book, um, from other authors in the book in my own life. So 
we're happy with it. We think it can be really helpful uh, for people. So either one of y'all want to take a stab at QAnon, like what, what is kind of the, and, and I bring that up just because obviously it's in the title of the, of, of the book, but also we hear about this a lot, right? I mean, it's in, you know, at least once a week. And if you're reading and pay attention to news, it comes up somewhere um, in some publication somewhere. And so I'd just be curious how y'all define it. Um, and then I also kind of want to get into a little bit of the, the history of that and just kind of the, the establishment, if you will, of, 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 of QAnon. Yeah, I can jump in here. I think that, you know, QAnon's in the title. Um, the, the the book is focused on conspiracy theories more generally, like the, the advice would be useful regardless of it. But of course, like you said, that's one we hear about a lot today. And, and that's probably the most prominent. But yeah, QAnon writes so an anonymous source, some people think maybe two, named self-identified as Q. Was it 2015-ish? Um, 2017. I, 2017, that's right, after Trump was elected, dropped uh, some started dropping stuff on 4chan and then later on 8chan message boards. That, so the queue is supposed to be this, some have some kind of higher level security clearance. And so it would make predictions, say things. And in essence, the idea is there's this group or cabal of like Satan worshiping pedophiles and politics, primarily Democrats, Hollywood celebrities, you know, news and entertainment media doing child sex trafficking and the, the sort of deep state government. And then I think Trump is supposed to be like the, I was going to say savior, but that, well, in some ways, yeah, right. He's the one that's going to expose all this evil, defeat them. They'll all be the truth of what Q's been saying will be made known one day. There'll be like this great renewal in America. So it's got a lot of political, I mean, it tends to be a on the right kind of political movement and, a lot of religious and apocalyptic language, spiritual battle language, which we talk about in the book as well. So that's the essence of it. Of course, a, none, a lot of these predictions come out and then they're, they don't happen. Or it, it's such a unyieldy mess of things that are said under this umbrella of QAnon. And some of them are like mutually contradictory, I believe. So there's no way it can all be true, but it's still motoring on. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. Um, uh, Greg, did you want to add anything to this and uh, and whatnot? No, I think that pretty much captures the QAnon phenomenon. So as I'm thinking about just this area, what is so attractive then about conspiracy? I mean, y- y'all, yeah, that's the right. That's the opener, right? The you know the concerns about conspiracy theories for Christians. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, just like, what what is the attraction to it? What is what what are some of the components to it? Uh, you know, is there some origins to this? Like, can we like, oh, okay, this this person here? Like, do we know who Q is in general? Stuff like that. Like, what what is it so attractive for this for people to kind of get on this? And of course, with social media, I mean, it's like a a wildfire that that spreads. I think we're so polarized today in society and not just in these realms, but just in general, mm-hmm. we're so polarized and, and conspiracy theory just feeds, feeds the flame. So you see these things crop up. We've got, I mean, we're, we're, we're so distrustful of the other side, the other political party that we just we're prone to think the worst of them. So when somebody suggests there's some sort of Satan worshiping sex cult going on and it's those other people, we're so quick to buy it up without evidence, without good evidence, at least. And so I think that that's part of the problem. There's also, we'll, we talk about 
um, the marriage of evangelical Christianity and right-wing politics that's been developing or evolving over the last few decades. And this is just the, the latest manifestation of it. I think that's part of the problem. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I think the attractiveness is, I mean, I think this feeds into some other stuff. There are definitely overlap and intersections between conspiracy theories and things like a certain versions of American Christian nationalism and politics and people like people are when they don't feel secure or safe or there's large change, larger changes going on in society, which, you know, for, there are a lot in America related to religion, um, racial and ethnic demographics, all this kind of stuff plays in. And there's, you know, since water Vietnam and Watergate, that's kind of a steadily over the time eroding trust, like Greg mentioned, institutions, we want to latch latch onto something that feels stable or strong. And so if I'm a, if I, I can, I might buy into this. Cause man, this is what I can, I know what's really going on. I can see beneath the surface that this, there's this nefarious stuff happening in society and I'm going to be in the know and we're going to try to expose the truth. Yeah. Um, so, so there's a security and a power in that. I mean, that's just human nature. We want to be in the know, right? I want to know what's really going on. And there's good things about that, right? Because that can drive us to seek truth and wisdom but in humility, but if it's pride or fear driving us, then we go astray. And I think this is just a, a clear example of going astray. And so, yeah, it really is. I mean, it was just shocking to me. Like a lot of these things, I hear something, I just kind of dismiss it. And then you keep hearing about it. And you're like, then you start looking at some of the when people start researching this, they're just large numbers of people um, in America, professing Christians that buy into some or a lot of this. And that's really troubling to, to both of us, which is part of why we wanted to write it. We wanted to help the church um, deal with this and not, not undermine its witness to Christ and his kingdom. So, so with that in mind, I mean, in, in part of my background is I grew up in a very fundamentalist black uh, Seventh-day Adventist environment. And so uh, you know, there was always something about, quote unquote, the end of the world. I mean, I, I, I've told the story on the show a thousand times. I got that. My earliest memory of church was actually being scared to death. Right. One of the, th the ideas was that Sunday blue laws were going to be passed and they're going to persecute all these Christians. And I remember a traveling evangelist came to church one Saturday um, and handed out this literature. And I as a kid, I think I was like five or six. I believed it. It was here. It was in print. And they were saying that these laws have been passed. Seventh-day Adventists were going to be being drug out of ch church and shot. And then, you know, the, the person was just like, well, this is what could happen. And it's, and, it's, and it's almost surely going to happen. Of course, this was like the 70s and whatnot. So what what is it that keeps people believing in these things? I mean, every year, right, you always have somebody that says, okay, the end of the world has come. I heard just somebody last week talk about how uh, I think this week the rapture is supposed to happen, right? It's like, so there's always just something that's coming up that's saying, okay, the rapture's happened. No, Jesus is coming. No, Jesus is already here, right? Or the lizard people are going to take over. So I'm curious how y'all navigate some of those questions. And I'd also be curious how you navigate maybe even some of this in classrooms, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it always, the end of the world thing never ceases to amaze me when, you know, when Jesus said, you know, when Jesus said, I don't know when this time will be. Right. As at least one who is here, I'm not sure that we're going to figure it out. You know, it just happens over and over. And time, you know, here's the day the world ends, doesn't happen. I mean, the same person, I, mean, I can't remember the guy's name, would predicted it numerous times over his lifetime. But um, yeah, I just think we, yeah, the end, I mean, I think maybe some of the psychology that, that, kind of props up the conspiracy theory stuff does, a, did the same thing with the end time stuff, right? Um, 
And if you want to be cynical or a realist somewhere on that scale, I mean, there's a lot of money to be made in this kind of thing. I mean, I remember being in in college as an undergrad when the first Iraq war and the, I mean, the number of Christian books about Armageddon, the end times and all that stuff, because there was war in the middle. I mean, it was just rampant. And then, you know, a couple of years later, you, you can buy like hundreds, you know, buy them for a dollar a copy. Um, yeah. I'm sure they still made plenty of money. But yeah, I think that's part of it. I don't know. Do you have thoughts, Greg? Or? Well, I think you're both right. There's a, there's this end times theology in the church, especially the evangelical world that has been, you know, going steady for the last few decades, as long as I can remember it. And it's part of our theology that we're a part of this drama, this heavenly drama of spiritual forces, right? That's that's part of the Christian story as well. It's, it's one thing to talk about a battle against the evil forces in the universe. And it's another thing to name it as, as that these this group of people over here or that political party over there. I think it's a very different, that's, that's where things get dangerous. You start calling people evil or you know, saying the worst possible things, inferring the worst possible things about other people. That's where things go, go wrong. Yeah. I, and I always do find it amazing that, um, that it tends to really land primarily right on the left or anybody who's a left or Democrat, liberal, you know, and of course all the ensuing names that come with that. Um, I'd be curious as y'all were editing this, I love the titles of these, Jesus asks truth, that's chapter one. It is always wrong. Is it always wrong to believe a conspiracy theory? That's chapter two. Can we trust science? Um, how would, how did, what, I be again, as editors, I've edited books myself and, and, and done all that. And so there's the technical part, like, okay, yeah, we got to put these headings and, you know, this typesetting. But I'm be curious, how was your feedback to different, to various authors as you were putting this manuscript together? Yeah, I mean, I think we, a lot of the of the contributors, authors, were people that we knew or knew of their work. And so we we just like, hey, do you, here's what we want to do. Do you have any ideas for a chapter? And so some of these were like the one on science, the former professor of ours, and that was kind of one of his areas of expertise, but he also, but he's good at writing for not just other academics, but for, you know, a, a public audience. Because the goal for our book wasn't to write something that just other professors would read, right? It's aimed at... Um, people outside of that little world, right? Want it to be useful. Um, other people, we ask, kind of ask more specific things. Um, like, could you write about this? So, yeah, I mean, it sort of fell together in a nice way. And some of the, when there was overlap, we kind of had to finesse and say, you know, maybe focus less on this or focus more on that. So the chapters didn't duplicate each other. But yeah, it was actually, at least from my perspective, relatively easy to put together. Um, yeah, and we really we got, gave once we got going, yeah. And we gave voice to we let them have their own voice. We didn't we didn't steer them too much in one direction or the other. So it's really each chapter stands alone. You could you could just open it up, whatever chapter interests you, and read it. Uh, and you'll find that we don't all agree with one another either. And there are different definitions of conspiracy theories in the book. So we thought that made it a better book just to to let the authors speak for themselves. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. I love it on projects where I can work on where, you know, there is there is that allowance, right? Um, I remember one of my first articles that I wrote back in the early 2000s, there was this, this disagreement. I do a lot of work around hip hop, popular culture and rhetoric. 
um, and religion and there's this whole thing about, you know, well, but Jesus, would Jesus really been, you know, down with hip hop? And I was like, I can't believe we're actually having this conversation. Like, if you want to argue with the methodology, sure, but I'm not going to edit my stuff out. So I'm glad to hear that, that y'all were doing that. This is great. Um, is this, and this is kind of a leading question, is this limited? I mean, typically what we, we see on the news. So I'd be curious, is, you know, what did y'all find with this? How is this? Is this relegated to white communities? It's primarily Latinx, African-American, Pan-Asian communities. Is there more there? I'd be, I'd be curious. Yeah, that's a good question. I was thinking that like some of the data is it was more like, like a, I think a higher percentage actually of certain white communities by this. So like white evangelicals or white Republicans compared to, um, you know, other people from other races or ethnicities, it's higher. Um, but there's, but it's not, not solely, right. So they're, you know, they're definitely, yeah, it's the, like, I can think of people from Latinx communities, right. Where this is prominent sometimes in African-American or black communities too, but it, but it seems primarily from the social science research, I said that it's primarily like a conservative, theologically conservative, politically conservative. Well, when we're talking about the election thing, when we're talking about the election QAnon, you're probably right. But you, you got to keep in mind, this is probably why it was a leading question, but not intentionally, of course, is that the when we're talking about conspiracy theories, you've got justified conspiracy theories and ones that aren't, right? There, there are ones that are real and ones that aren't real. And so when you're looking at that, it's a much bigger picture. And and, and there's a there's a book, what is it? The United States of Paranoia, I believe is the title, mm-hmm. that, trace, that traces the phenomenon of conspiracy theories all the way back to the beginnings of our country. This is not like a recent phenomenon, even though for us it is like we're surprised it seems to be bigger than ever. But it's been a part of our our nation's history from the beginning. I don't I don't know if it you know if it's a white evangelical problem. Clearly, some of the articles in the chapters in the book pull this out, but specifically in relation to QAnon and you know the election fraud and stuff like that. There's there's clearly surveys that have been done about that. Um, but if we're talking about things like Watergate or ways that people looked at, say, the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, I mean, there's lots of consp- so-called conspiracies out there. And some of them, there's more evidence to support and some of them there's not. This is just a phenomenon of our, of our culture, I, I would think. I'm not a social scientist, so I can't give, I can't give you numbers. But Yeah, it reminds me of the maybe we've talked about this, Greg, it's like an old Saturday Night Live skit, Black Jeopardy. And it's got like three contestants. Two of them are like um, black women, and one's Tom Hanks with like a MAGA hat. And they yeah. start answering the questions the same way. <laughs> yeah. Like they mean totally different things by it, but there is yeah. an overlap there. The problem yeah, is, yeah, yeah. you know, like Greg said, like we tend to, in our society, and we say conspiracy theory, we kind of think, you know, lizard people. But there are, cons- I mean, there have been conspiracies that actually happened, right? Yeah, Whether yeah. you look at history, history of race in our country or Watergate, um, others that you might, you know, people debate or encounter, all those kind of things. So we wanted to, we want to allow for that. And I think maybe this is a good place to say this, just that as someone who's more skeptical of this kind of stuff, my chapter's on humility and in parts because I've looked, I've worked a lot on that virtue in books and and dare I say, even in my life, although, you know, you can ask my wife how well I'm doing. She would know better than anybody. But but I think it's easy just to, like, one of our concerns is, like, someone in me, like me in a church, and I'm skeptical. And then the guy next to me in the pew is talking about, you know, some QAnon thing he heard or found on the Internet. It's easy just to, like, do two things are really easy. Shut down 
because I don't want to interact with this guy. He's weird. He's out there. Or even just look down on him. I think this guy's messed up. And he might be messed up, and he probably is, like cognitively. But, you know, we all, I guess my our, our heart is just, we need to be humble and look at our own internal attitudes to people. And like, I'm not going to go debate somebody on Twitter or Facebook about conspiracy theories, but I might have a conversation with someone in my church who I sit next to every week. And so I need to be humble and not dismissive or belittling of that person, even if I think the ideas are just ludicrous. And that that's where it parallels in class. Like, I don't, we talk about conspiracy theories a little bit in my classes, but students say things I mean, I can reflect back to things students have said all the time over 20 years here. Yeah. You know, I get freshmen and then think, and I just think, man, how could you even think that's true? And then I think of some of the stuff I thought and did and said when I was 18 and, you know, I cut them a break. So it's that mix of grace and truth, I guess, is the best way I can think to put it that Jesus had. And we want to have that with, with everybody, really, but including people who are ankle, knee, or neck deep in QAnon. Especially our brothers and sisters in Christ that we're trying to help grow in Christ. Yeah, no, I I liked it, and I'm glad you said you know talking about just being a skeptic. I think there is some skepticism that goes. I mean, being black and in this country, you're absolutely right. There is, there is. I mean, there's you know a new Netflix special. Uh, you know, I think they clone Tyrone, right? And so it's kind of unpacking this. And of course, it's conspiracy theory. You know, spoiler alert. You know, it turns out to be real. There really is a government agency cloning black people and keeping the chaos in the hood and um, but it does speak to some of the broader things, right? I mean, I know, uh, I teach a media lit class, uh, right now. And of course we were talking about, you know, 9-11, just, what is it? 21, 22 years now, uh, two decades, we're two decades in. And, you know, obviously now we have a generation that didn't live through it. And so it's just kind of like, I don't know. Uh, and that there's this ongoing kind of rising, conspiracy, at least on this side of the country, um, where 9-11 might not have happened. It might have been holograms and it might have been AI to get us to, you know, to come together. And, I'm, and again, like you like you just got through saying, like, you can easily dismiss it. But it's sometimes in a classroom, it's just like, well, OK, well, I'm going to have to be 16, 17 weeks with the student. I can't just dismiss them. We're going to have to have a conversation about, OK, what are some of the origins? So, Greg, if you wouldn't mind sharing, you talked a little bit about the history. Would you unpack that a little bit? Because I don't think enough people know about it. I think Cornell West said it the best, right? We live in the United States of amnesia. And so we, it's easy to forget about where we've come from, where we, you know, where we've been, what we've been doing. So I don't know if you want to if you have the, the space to, to unpack some of that, just the, the history. Like you said, at the founding of this of this country, of this nation. Yeah, I don't remember all the cases from the book. It's been a while since I read that book. But you go back just to, I mean, in recent history, in my lifetime, and Mike, you might want to jump in here, but the satanic panic of the 80s, right? There was, you know, a lot of Christian leaders or others who were who were making these allegations that uh, what was a Procter and Gamble and other other companies and uh, political leaders, maybe, who were associated with some sort of Satan worshiping. So this 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 thing alone has been around for a long time. I mean, it's pretty convenient to tarnish anybody you want by associating them with Satan, the worst possible thing. Um, but yeah, beyond that, you know, go back to Watergate. Beyond that, um, yeah, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but. To just refer your listeners to the book. I think the title is correct, uh, The United States of Paranoia. The author does a great job of just cataloging the history of it all. 
Yeah, and even though it might not be, I mean, there's somewhat a conspiracy theory and some other stuff. Think of like even just the like the Salem witch trials, that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. There's been you know recurring in our history and in the history of other nations, right? The uh, yeah, the demonization in certain ways of the of Jewish people, right? I mean, I just I've been reading some stuff by Christian nationalists not really enjoyable recently, but just basically yeah, like talking about Jews controlling the wealth and the media and it's 2023, you know, and you think, did we not learn the lessons of 1943 and, and those kind of things? So, so conspiratorial thinking is, has been around for a long time and, and sort of the, the habits of mind that lead to it. Right. I think that's, that's what you can trace all the way back, all kinds of different issues. Um, and maybe, I don't know if Americans have a, I don't know if we, I don't think we have a special susceptibility to it, but we are sort of really skeptic. There's like a, a strain of skepticism towards intellectuals or academics or research. I mean, we saw that with COVID, but I just mean farther back. It's like, I mean, if you like most movies, unless it's like a scientist, like your average English professor in a movie is usually somebody who's like cheating on his wife with a grad student and, you know, is disingenuous. I mean, we, I just think we, there's a good thing about democratization of knowledge because you don't need a degree to like learn and grow and know stuff. But there's, but the other extreme is just to dismiss everything and just think that we can, that I know more than the experts when, you know, maybe I do, but if every time I think I know more than the experts, or every time I buy a conspiracy, it confirms what I already believe about politics or religion or the United States, then that's a red flag, right? That I've got a bad habit of mind. I'm not willing to be challenged in my thinking, just looking for this confirmation bias, just looking for what's going to confirm what I already believe and reject the stuff that doesn't without actually considering the evidence. And that's what... That's a habit of mine we really want people to get from this is it's not just evidence, but publicly available evidence, right? You should be able to test these claims in some sense, philosophically, historically, whatever it is, theologically, all those things matter, not just in a lab, right? But evidence much more broadly construed. Yeah. 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 What, and was, this is, and this is, a, this brings up a good question too. And I'd be curious for both of y'all's input on this. What is, what is the harm? What is the effect particularly on Christianity, when you start thinking about just, you know, Pew Research numbers of folks, particularly younger, you know, those under 25 saying, I don't know about Christianity and faith, like, you know, the nuns, as as they have categorized them and and, and whatnot. I still get a lot of stuff from Barna that, you know, says, oh, we got to go out and reach this next generation. And so I'm, I'm, I'd be curious, like, is there an effect on Christianity, especially when you, you know, think about wedge issues, abortion, you know, gun control, uh, right? The list kind of goes on with that, but, you know, the border. Uh, but I'd be curious, like, what is what is something as y'all put this together and y'all done your, you've done your research? Yeah, Christianity and the conspiracy theories. Like, what is, what is the, what are the effects, if that makes sense? I hope that makes sense. That was kind of long-winded, but what y'all got? Yeah, I, I think Mike said it well, earlier, I think it is in, the danger of it is undermining our witness. I mean, Christians are concerned about the truth, but we're also, you know, talking about Jesus Christ. We're talking about somebody who we believe rose from the dead. And then we attach to that QAnon or some other, like the moon landing didn't happen, or there's microchips in vaccines. And, and we're concerned that that will have the effect of undermining our witness in the culture today. Yeah, I mean, I think if I'm, let's say I'm talking to my next door neighbor and, you know, one one week I'm telling, you know, over the fence or on the, you know, on the front walk or whatever about 
lizard people and you know that magnet you know stuff greg talked about and then the next week i'm telling him why i think jesus rose from the dead it's kind of like it undermines your credibility and i and i think too this this is something we're all susceptible to but i think some people get christians get so into this and i've had friends talk about family members like this where they actually are more they're more conspiracy theory evangelists than gospel evangelists right mm. they're more concerned to get pe- people to like understand and believe their conspiracy theory but not you know but not jesus i'm just like that's the that's the danger when these things get conflated and mixed up inside our belief systems when you're actually trying to convince somebody that q is telling the truth uh, rather than that jesus is the truth that's a worry yeah, I, I do think, I mean, I, uh, I like chapter nine of y'all's book. This is by, I look, J. Aaron Simmons and Kevin uh, Carnahan. Uh, it's much worse than you think. Just the title alone caught my attention, but just the, even the opening paragraph, right? A recent study by the Survey Center on American Life presents a staggering reality. White evangelical Republicans in the United States are far more likely to believe that there was widespread voter fraud in the 2000 presidential election than non-evangelical Republicans Moreover, the study shows that evangelicals are also more likely than non-evangelical Republicans to believe that there was a deep state. Um, well, let me let me break this out because I'm always big on terms and definition. What is a deep state? Because we hear that term a lot too. But I but this is but this is an interesting just opening paragraph just to this chapter here. Yeah, the de- I mean, I think it's just the idea there are some people holding the levers of power right that are, they're working um through media through relationships through all different venues to try to control things and so they're pushing you know so basically like the media is controlled by them or at least some of the media is and so they're working against trump and i think this gets conflated with QAnon, where the deep state is are also the people that are right the satan worshiping pedophiles right so they're trying to pr- pr- like hide what they're doing and um push back against Trump who was supposed to reveal it all. So yeah, it's kind of this, I mean, it's like the, it kind of reminds me like the old X-Files show, right? The smoking man, or there's just somebody like the truth is that truth's out there. And there's people in the government that know it, but they don't want us to know it. And they want to protect their power, their wealth, whatever it is. Um, Yeah. All right. All right. All right. Well, that breaks. I was just wondering if Greg, you wanted to chime in on anything on that. Uh, with deep state, I, and the only reason I ask is, um, oh, what was it? I was just thinking of a Simpsons episode that kind of, because there's right, there's conspiracy theories even around with that. Um, uh, and I'm a huge Simpsons fan, and so when I see pasted together video clips of their the, of their of their series that are then trying to make a point about, oh, the Simpsons predicted this too, and it's just kind of like, all right, all right, hold up. Stop the <laughs> stop the bus. They didn't. They did not even know what see. I even know what season that you're taking these from. Um, but what is, I mean, like, uh, Greg, I think you even said it, like we live in such a polarized time. What, where do we find ourselves now? I mean, we're all academics. I teach, I've been teaching now for, you know, over two decades myself. Uh, how do we navigate some of these things? I mean, I remember in the 2016 election, I'm a big AAR fan, so I was there and I remember Eddie Gloud, who was the president at the time, you know, got up and gave the plenary address. All of us are just kind of like, oh my gosh, this is, this is, this really happened. What do we do? And, you know, he really put kind of a lot of the, the square, not the blame, so to speak, but just the challenge right back to us as scholars, so to speak. 
uh, that, you know, it's like how much of this, you know, fell back on us, right? Because, you know, the academy is just kind of its own thing, right? You're trying to get tenure. You're trying to move forward. You're trying to put stuff out. And the minute you put stuff out, I'm guilty of this. You're on to the next project. You don't even got time to talk about that because it's like, now I got to go do this next article. Oh, I got to go do this next, you know, research product where I'm on this committee and stuff. And so, the, you know, the years just kind of just flow by. Um, and then you look up and it's kind of like, whoa, what, what, where are we at as a, as a country? Where do y'all find yourselves, particularly as cishet white males, being in the classroom, right? We have changing demographics. Or maybe then, I don't know, on your campus. I know on my campus, we're very much a changing demographic uh, campus, primarily, you know, here, at least here in Chicago to Latinx. Um, but I'd be curious, you know, how y'all deal with some of these things and, and the, you know, the impact of where we find ourselves with when so many people are connected to their devices. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, so I still remember a time without Wi-Fi and going, you know, <laughs> going without a wire and w without internet. But I'd be curious. I'm doing too much talking. So if, if any of that makes sense and resonates, I'd be curious what y'all think. Yeah, I think we as instructors, as professors, are the best position to address the problem. I mean, it's in a small way, but I, I think maybe one of the best ways. We have, we have a space, a classroom, where people of all diverse backgrounds are coming together, political backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, whatever, are coming together to take a class with us. And we have the opportunity to do what's not happening in our society is bring people together in conversation. And if you set up the class right, you have the right readings and you're the right type of instructor who can do it, it's a challenging thing to do. You can facilitate a very, I think, beneficial, constructive dialogue. And that includes, and this is why some people aren't gonna do it, is it includes not being dismissive of one particular view. It's taking all views seriously, hearing all views within certain constraints and ground rules, of course, but hearing all views and having that conversation, exploring them. And the first chapter of the book is, gives, I think, lays down some really great guidelines on just how to have a conversation with another person, which can apply to the classroom as well. We listen, we praise, and we probe. This is chapter one. We listen to what the other person has to say. It doesn't We're not talking about conspiracy theories. We might be talking about religion. We might be talking about something else. We listen seriously to what somebody else has to say, just as we would want them to listen to us. We praise them for their what they bring to the table. If it's a conspiracy theory, then maybe we say, oh, I'm glad you're so concerned about the state of affairs in our society today, the politics. I'm glad you're really concerned about this. I, I, I admire you for that. And then... Of course, you don't want to leave out the probing. That's the pushing back. That's to say, let's, okay, what reason do you have to believe that? What reason do you have that I should agree with you on this? I think you can do that in the classroom really well. I've been doing it in my in my logic class. I, I set up the syllabus to be basically, it's a, it's a combined critical uh, thinking and logic class. And the first half of the semester, at least, we talk, It's all the cases are all conspiracy theories. I've been doing this for several years now. It's been been a blast, but I just I just pull out of my tool bag all, all the conspiracy theories. We're talking about flat earth, moon landing hoax, vaccines, all that stuff. We just we just put it out there and we apply the, the ideas that we're learning in the readings to these cases. Occasionally in the class, somebody will come out and say, Yeah, I believe that stuff or, or whatever. And we're just make sure that you know intellectual virtues are a part of this as well. So being open-minded, listening, you know, seriously, taking the other view, point of view seriously having a hunger for the truth, no matter what. Uh, and I think I think we're in the best position as instructors to do that. Where else is it gonna happen? We're so isolated in our echo yeah. chambers in society today. And, and here in the classroom, we have this, this one chance to have them 
you know, together mixed. So I don't know. I'm, I'm optimistic about it. That's good. That's good. Mike, what, what, what are your thoughts input on this? Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. It's easy, especially earlier in your academic career. You just, you want to make tenure. You want that job security you want, because if you don't make it, then you've got to go somewhere else or find a new career. Um, but yeah, I've been trying to be like more intentional in my classes about actually something Greg said about helping students understand and even as they choose to cultivate not just intellectual virtue but moral ones as well right now I teach at a state university so I'm not like not trying to whatever enforce my particular views on them but I but I think I mean this is just I mean having good character it's one of those things that variety of traditions, religions, philosophies, wisdom traditions. Like it just seems to me humans across the world and different cultures who reflect on human nature, see the value of good character. And I feel like we've lost that emphasis. And so I want my students to kind of know this, a lot of the important stuff about ethics, you know, philosophical ethics, past and present, kind of the great figures of the tradition, as well as some that, that have gone um, overlooked. But then I'm, I'm kind of, I mean, I set it up so that there's also room to hopefully they're inspired to try to live better lives. And you think about, I mean, one of the reasons we still have the humanities and, and some other classes apart from just job training is we're trying to help people grow as human beings and cultivate virtues that citizens, that real, that good citizens in a democracy need. Um, I just had this conversation this morning in my honors class about voting and do you want everybody to vote and or not, right? We just assume we want everyone to vote. And it was just, it was a good discussion because they didn't. And it wasn't just because of people that disagreed with them. It was like, because people don't know anything and they just are voting or just going with the gut feeling or what the last thing they heard on the news. And this is right and left. It's not just uh, one side or the other. So yeah, I want to help. I think we're positioned to help students gain experience and having conversations about controversial, difficult issues. And then you kind of hope that they can carry those skills out into the world with them. Yeah. No, I'm I'm with that. I, I like that. I like that a lot. I think that and I would agree that I think these are the spaces and places to do it. Um, you know, I, I the, the challenge, of course, is, you know, right. These things go into or these ideas go into right people's ideology, right. And worldview. And so, you know, that pushes somebody to say, you know what, we need a you know, I think I think about Pizzagate and I think about right. Like that pushes drive somebody to say, oh, I believe this. I'm going to go do it. And like, and the guy is like recording this thing, like truly believing like he's doing this. He's believing that these things actually exist, driving there to actually inflict harm and, and to break through. This is, you know, God's calling. Um, I guess my question is, is like for y'all personally, identifying as Christians is identifying as, you know, saying these things that how does, how does this stuff move or, or affect you personally and thinking about, you know, your day-to-day -day interactions and whatnot. And especially as we think about, um, you know, the next 10 years, right? We think about AI and what AI can do. I mean, the images that AI creates are, are getting better, right? Um, yeah. it, it, they've, you know, there's, you think about stuff that was five years ago, people were like, oh, this will never catch on. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, there's all kind of different sections of, of, of AI now, right? It's like, I, the other day I typed into one, give me two academics arguing at a department meeting. And, you know, 20 seconds later, I've got these two realistic looking human beings that you think would, you know, taken out of the Chronicle for Higher Ed. So I'd be curious, like just even something like that, um, the believability factor, um, do we see that eroding? Do we not? 
Maybe this is getting, maybe that's asking too much of a conspiracy thing. It's like, oh, the AIs are taking over, right? It's going to be Determinator, right? They're, they're going to they're gonna come kill us. They're programming us right now. But I'd be curious, like, you know, where, where y'all find yourself on you know, personal stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of scary because as things get better, it's harder to make those judgments about truth, to be discerning. I mean, I'm, I can't remember the exact detail, but I've, I've just started just thinking about, you know, people can make a really nice looking meme and that can convince people. But now you can, people can do a really convincing deep fake of, you know, Biden saying something or Trump or whatever it is. Right. So there's going to have to like, people are just going to have to, including us be more, be more careful, right. In terms of these kind of things, like our sources and what we believe and, and why. And that's where I, like, for me, I think it's important. This is where the importance of like, like the professions becomes important again in society, at least the way they're supposed to operate is there's a code of ethics and people sort of self-police. So whether it's journalists or academics, I mean, you've got, you know, people doing research, we've got to start, this is where the character thing again comes back. We've got, and for me, that's the fundamental thing, right? If people need to like value character and what that means enough that, yeah, I might be able to like budge the data on this social science survey that I need to get published for my tenure, but I'm not going to do it because I don't want to be that, person right i want to value my integrity more than than taking the easier road um yeah in my own life it to me it's that i want to like i want my students and people and my church people to come across in the community to to see me as someone that they could like that's not going to ridicule them or mock them to their face or behind their back for anything they say even if i think it's just outlandish i'm going to like listen and engage and just yeah, it really comes down to it's a way to love our neighbors ourselves. It's just to respect people. It's one thing to respect people you disagree with and, and that have good reasons for it. It's another to respect people who you think are wrong and believe things that just are like worse than belief in Santa Claus or something. So I think a lot of it has to do with that, with with that valuing of others. Um, and especially as Christians, that's, you know, I want my. I mean, I don't think they would put it this way, but I, over the years, I've made it more a focus just to love my students, right? And, and whatever that means as a professor at Eastern Kentucky University, and that means I put the, you know, if they need something, I'm not going to do whatever they want, but I'm going to. I want them to know I value them, and that when they come into my office, they're not bothering me, or you know, their emails aren't bothering me, like, and I'll tell them that because I get them up, they're apologizing to me. Sorry to bother you. You don't bother me. I teach college because actually, yeah, I love my field, but I also like college students i like to interact and it's a time of life where you get a chance to kind of develop your thoughts and grow and so anyway i'm sort of going on a little ramble i guess but i think no, that's that's what's what matters to me and so i want a student who believes one of these things and i've had students tell me stuff that about conspiracy theories or aliens or I had one told me he believed the greek gods were real and yeah, it'd be easy just to think just to make fun of him or just dismiss him but but just talk to him about it. You know, a lot of people just want to be listened to. And then, then there's room to, to help them or maybe I'm wrong. Right. Maybe, maybe they, you know, I've had students that too say things that really challenge an assumption I didn't even know I was making. So, so we benefit as well. I like that. Greg, I think you're, the AI technology represents an unprecedented challenge to our society, especially our institutions of knowledge. And I like, what Honora O'Neill says in a TED talk on trust, I think I can't remember the exact title of the talk, but she says, it's not just an obligation that we have to discern truth from falsehood, but it's also an obligation of, you know, the institutions 
to be more transparent, to reform, to be, you know, they've got stuff. There's there's a reason why there's a lot of distrust in our society, and that's on that's institutional, and that needs to change as well. But I know your question was about us personally. I think I think personally, and the reason why we we did this book, at least in part, was because we we want we want the church to think more carefully. We just don't we don't want the church to fall into these traps. And so hopefully, you know, whatever it is that we can have this conversation, and, and it's, I think it's starting to happen, but I think it, it requires courage. Because inevitably, politics are going to come into the fray. And at church, at least the ones I go to, we don't like to talk about politics very much. So that's going to be something we got to get over. But hopefully, we'll we'll be able to, books like this and conversations like this one will get people thinking more carefully. No, that's good. I No, and exactly. And I think this is, this. you know, when it comes to topics like this, I'm, I'm, I was glad to see this come across my desk. And I'm like, oh, man, this is good. Um, so my next question, I think, would be then just be, where do we go from now? I mean, where do we or where do we go from here? Uh, like what? I, yes. I mean, so a lot of my research looks at social media engagement, time online and, and whatnot. And like one of the most embarrassing things I can ask my students to do is to tell me their their use on their device. Right. If they have an Apple device, which a lot of them do, uh, and even some of the Android ones, you know, it tells you how long you've had and what apps you're you're accessing and like, it'll even give you little reminders like, Hey, you know, you've been online today for four or five hours. So maybe you should probably stop. So, and I point online out so much because just, there is a, just a slew. I think about what's well, Twitter. I always, I'm always going to notice Twitter, but it's X now. Um, and when Elon Musk was, you know, basically doling out the blue check marks and like just the amount of fake, you know, the forestry, U.S. forestry was putting out like, hey, go ahead and burn the forest. It's fine with us. We don't, you know, the plants go to end. And so people were assuming like this is a verified real account and come to find out, no, if somebody just paid their little $8 and they're now blue and verified. And so what happens, right, when the, the foundations of what we think are supposed to be checks, right, peer reviews that, I mean, was it, I forget which president that was just had to resign um, and it was, and it was a STEM, uh, 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 cat too. It was just like, no, we just found out there's a whole bunch of holes in your research. And like you, yeah, this, you, you, you talked about, you know, making data up and stuff. It's like, you know, or going the easy route. Like, yeah, that was clear in, in some of your work. And I'm not even sure how this stuff got passed. So where do we go from here? And I'd be, I, I'm, I'm genuinely asking that. Cause again, I love the book, but I'd be curious what y'all's thoughts are on, on where we go from here. I don't know if y'all have kids and how, if they're involved and, uh, or, or just students in general, but yeah. Yeah. Do you mean more just in society generally? Are you thinking more particularly with, with Christians or in the I, church? I, yeah, that's a great question. Great uh, follow-up question. I would say both. And particularly since, you know, a lot of my listeners are either, a still involved in some you know component of church or B deconstructing whatever that life was. Um, I think that would be very interesting, especially since it tends to come up a lot in in regards to Christianity, America, evangelicalism, the future of our faith, and whatnot. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's a yeah, that's a good question. I'd say yeah, let's 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 do that. I'd start with just saying we need to get out of our bunkers and our echo chambers and get to get across the street and meet somebody new. Part of the reason why we believe such horrible things about people is because we don't know them. When I teach world religions, I, I tell I tell my students, you got to meet, you, you've got all these stereotypes and 
misconceptions about what these other religions believe, partly in the way you think about them, it's partly because you don't, you don't know any of them. Once you start to, once you meet them and have a conversation with them, you realize you understand them better and you realize they're not evil. They might be misled. It's possible they're misled. Um, but I think the reason why we're so polarized and there's so much hate out there too, is because we just don't know the person we've isolated ourselves from the other. Right. And I would just suggest that's a general thing to whole societies that we would find ways to get back together in conversation. Um, start with that. Yeah. I have a little bit of hope only like I've noted a marked difference this semester in my students, like energy and like willingness to engage like a, for the last several years, I mean, COVID stuff, I think just like pulling teeth, but it, it feels like, I mean, hopefully it lasts, right? Just this resurgence of, yeah, we like being in person and talking about stuff. And I've got, where normally I might have five students participate recently. Now it's like 10 to 15 out of my 30 person class or, and sometimes more. Um, I had some hope, another a colleague of mine talking to their students, their students in the honors program, but about social media, like, oh, we don't like TikTok. We're not on there. Actually, we don't really like any social media except Facebook. Like, it's kind of come full circle now that now the kids are on Facebook. But they said, we didn't come here for that stuff. We came here to read books. Now, yeah, these are honor students, but still, um, that's unique <laughs> or a difference, right? And so yeah. I think there's some hope there. Um, for Christians, yeah, this, I mean, I actually think this is a project I've a book that I just wrote coming out, I guess next spring on humility and love. But I just think we have to like return to what is the way of Jesus as he lived it. And as the scriptures and like careful followers of the way talk about, and it's, it's humility, it's love, it's practicing some of those classical spiritual disciplines, but alone and in community I mean, community is huge. I think that we just like the past, this is my, third year being a part of a church plant in town. And the first thing we did was read Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is just a, I'd never read it before. And it was incredible description of community. And we're actually like trying to live it out and, and it works. Like my life's better. Their lives are better, right? We like feel like a part of the community. It's not just, Hey, let's have some community and meet at Starbucks or at the bar or wherever it is. It's people are like showing up at each other's doors and um, yeah, so for me, I think for the, the church, the way forward is we've got to figure out there are a lot of things that are forming our souls or our spirits in ways, including social media and culture, and in ways that push us away from truth and wisdom. And there's this 2,000 year old path of practice, you know, seeking Christ together um, with others who want to follow Jesus, um, practicing discipline, disciplines like solitude, service, fasting, um, working for justice, community, all that, all that stuff matters. Um, the inner practices and the outer ones. And yeah, I, I mean, as someone who does this in fits and starts, but I've started to see some benefits over the last 20 years of trying to practice these things, like makes a difference. And then you become aware of like, I'm going to this for comfort, whether, it, you know, whether it's food or alcohol or social media or conspiracy theory, right? Where we could, where we're supposed to find that in in church and our community and with God. So yeah, a return to kind of those old practices that Jesus and his followers have shown us are important parts of seeking God and experiencing his grace the past couple thousand years. And it's not going to happen on a screen. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. That's a real good point. Um, my gosh, this has been great. I mean, the time has gone by even with all the, uh, the edits and the breakdowns from zoom. 
Uh, folks, the book is QAnon Chaos and the Cross, Christianity and Conspiracy Theories. Um, what are some uh, what are some final thoughts here in folks if they're kind of on the fence like, man, should I read this? Should I not? Uh, should I just get the cliff note version? What are what are some takeaways y'all want to, you know, want to leave folks and listeners with? Well, this isn't a book that you hand to your conspiracy theorist friend and say, read this, you'll, you'll be, you'll <laughs> All be right. saved. All right. uh, this, is a, this is a book written for family and friends of people and church leaders who, are, who have people in the pews who believe this and are maybe ranting on this stuff. This is for them to, to help them, give, equip them, um, and hopefully it represents a great toolkit for that. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's, that's really the heart behind it is to help people. I mean, this, this is tearing apart in certain places, churches, families, and if it's not tearing them apart, it's putting great strain and stress on relationships. And, and really, we want this to be, a, yeah, like to equip people to love their neighbor, whoever that is, including their conspiracy theory believing neighbor uh, as a way to to love God and and serve. Um, because we're, you know, talking about apologetics and, and witnessing the Christian faith. But at the end of the day, we're just, the goal of that stuff is to help others know things. And we don't just do that with arguments. We do that in relationships and give and take and admitting our own you know, mistakes and mistakes we've made with belief. So we want people to hopefully approach it in that spirit and see it as something that can help them help others. And it, even if somebody doesn't, that other person doesn't change their mind, at least it can help you be more effective in, in loving them and, and maintaining that relationship, not, not having these kind of things break a relationship apart. Um, if at all possible. Yeah. Ooh, that's a lot. That's a lot. Cause that's, that is definitely a big thing, right? Relationships and families that, you know, I, you know, I talk to students of mine who are just like, you know, yeah, my family and I aren't on the same, you know, they may be flat earthers or they may be, you know, something over here on nine 11, you know, whatever. But there's, there's a sense of this, this, this disconnect. Um, well, I thank both of y'all. This is, there's so much else to cover, but I, I uh, one, I want to be respectful of our time, but also I think it's important for folks to go out and check this out. Uh, so I really appreciate both of y'all coming on and talking a little bit, um, about this, this great read and that's, that's out there and that exists, uh, for us to, uh, take in and, and, and learn more. Uh, any ways folks can contact you? What is any, any, you know, uh, maybe y'all got a big website. Maybe there's somebody out there right now with grant money and they're like, Hey, I want to fund this next <laughs> project out there. <laughs> Where can folks get a hold of y'all at? Recording in progress. All right. You're back. Yes. <laughs> there we go. That was so close. That was the last leg. Um, yeah. So yeah, for me, folks, I mean, I'm on... Most of my social media handles are Michael W. Austin. So like at Michael W. Austin on Twitter, Instagram. I think I have an author page on Facebook. And it just depends. Sometimes I'm active. Other times I ignore it. I'm a website too. Probably the best place just to where my work is, michaelwaustin.com. Um, yeah. I don't have much of a social media presence, but if they, anybody wants to contact me, they can email me at my university address. Um, that's gbach at uttyler.edu quick Google search will pull up that uh, directory page with my contact information. 
Cool, cool. No, I appreciate that. And, and I know these days, you know, it's always interesting just to see putting your information out there. I mean, I, I subscribe with... I think it's called Team Delete Me. So they're like, just take my stuff off the internet. Here's, here's my university address. Uh, but thank you so much for sharing that. And for those listening, I will always, as you know, I'll put these in the show notes at whitehodgepodcast.com. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, thank you, gentlemen, so much. I'm assuming this book is readily available. I mean, it's it's out, correct? Cause, okay. Yeah. Yeah, you can get it anywhere. Okay. Yeah. All right. No, I appreciate that. I just wasn't sure. I know sometimes I get desk copies and... Somebody sent me something right. the other day. It's like, no, it's not going to be out till next September. I was like, well, damn, y'all sending me this hella early. Um, <laughs> yeah. But thank you so much. Uh, blessings to both of you and the work that y'all are doing, both in the classroom and just out in your communities. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Same to you. Thanks for having us. Are you an alumnus of an evangelical college or university? Or have you ever wondered what attending or working at one of those schools is like? The Chapel Probation Podcast brings you the stories from students, faculty, and administration who experienced all the racism, the queer phobia, the misogyny, and purity culture weirdness that are kind of the hallmarks of these schools. I'm Scott Okamoto author of Asian American Apostate, Losing Religion and Finding Myself at an Evangelical University, which tells my story of teaching English at an evangelical school and realizing I didn't believe in God or the Bible anymore. I created Chapel Probation as a compliment to my book, but this podcast has become its own community of people who have stories of hurt and pain and stories of triumph during and after their time at evangelical schools. Some of the guests you've probably heard of, but most of them you probably haven't. But all the stories are incredible examples of surviving Christian schools and finding ourselves. You can find Chapel Probation wherever you listen to podcasts, and I hope you'll join us.